Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So I said last week when we started this, the reason we're doing this series is that we've always wanted to be the type of church where people could come and honestly ask their questions and, and grapple with their doubts and, and, and be able to, to get answers. Um, because in a lot of churches, that's, that's really not acceptable. You know, you just toe the party line, don't step out of place, you know, don't question anything, just believe and follow. Um, and we've said, no, 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 we want people to be able to ask those questions. Because the truth is, every one of us as Christ followers, from time to time, have doubts, have questions, you know, for whatever reason, you know, these things kind of trouble us. And, and it's okay. It's okay to ask the questions. And that's why we're doing this series. And it's not just for, for our believers who have questions. We've really kind of tried to open this up. If you've got friends who have these kinds of questions, tell them, you know, hey, come with me. We're looking at some answers to some of these really, really tough questions. So last week we started with the question, um, don't all religions basically teach the same thing? I mean, aren't they all just kind of different paths to the same goal? And we talked about there are differences. There are differences in all those. Now, there are some things that all religions have in common, basic things that we have in common. One of them is that all religions basically teach that there is a right and a wrong. There's good, there's evil. There, there's a, there is a standard of ethical and moral behavior that you ought to live up to. And all religions also would agree Nobody lives up to those standards. Um, and so that comes to this week's question. Okay, what do we do about that? What do we do about our moral failure? And, and we're going to look at one of Jesus' statements. And it's probably the most controversial statement. It's the one I think that most people have when you talk to them about the faith, when you talk to them about Christianity. Um, and it's found in, Matthew, in John chapter 14, if you want to turn there. And I want to set up a, a little bit of the context of this statement that he makes. It's a pretty bold statement, but I want you to hear a little bit of where he came from when he made this statement. So in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of Jesus. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, and this is the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for people outside the faith, and maybe for those of us even inside the faith, that's kind of a rough statement, because that sounds very narrow-minded. It sounds very exclusive, elitish. Um, how could Jesus make such a claim? I mean, there are all these other religions. Who are you to say you're right and I'm wrong? And I want to point out something, first of all, that Jesus did not say Christianity is the way. He didn't point to another religion. He said, I am the way. Because the issue is not another religion. The issue is a person. And Jesus makes this declaration. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That might be the most controversial claim he ever made. How do we deal with that? We grapple with that. What does it mean? It sounds so narrow. It sounds so exclusive. It sounds like you're just you know, telling everybody else you can't get in. And I want to, this morning, 
I'm not going to minimize the, the controversy of that statement, but I, what I want to do this morning is hopefully give you another perspective on that, that you can see what sounds like something that is very, very narrow and closed off and, and, and exclusive is actually the greatest, most wide open, inclusive statement that could ever be made. And I hope to get you there this morning. So that's what we're going to look at. Because Jesus said it's all not about religion, not about even a religion called Christianity. It's about me. It's about Jesus. So what is it about Jesus that backs up that claim? And and what is it that he's really saying here? And I think the first thing to understand is that it's not a narrowness. It's actually very, very inclusive because, because of Jesus, everybody's welcome. See, that, what you need to understand is Jesus was the most inclusive person there ever was. He makes this statement. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, that is a radical teaching for a Jewish rabbi because we are the chosen people. And, and Messiah is for the sake of our nation. He's here to throw off the oppressions of the, of the Roman uh, government. He is here to, to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, to reestablish the throne of David. What do you mean many rooms? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The door is wide open here. This isn't about one ethnic group. It's not about one religious belief. It's not about, it's not about anything else except the fact that the fa- my father's house has many rooms. It's wide open. Everybody's welcome. He's throwing the door wide open. And he didn't just talk it that way. He lived that way. His ministry was that way. If you read the Gospels and you read, Jesus was the most inclusive teacher there ever was. And you can tell by the people that flocked around him. And even the reputation that he had because of that. The religious people of his time said things like, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So just look at the people he hangs around with. How can he possibly be of God? I mean, just look at him. And, and you look at him. over and over again, Jesus has, he goes out beyond this circle. In fact, even, even in his disciples, even in the 12 that he originally called, among them was a guy named Matthew who was a tax collector. In fact, that statement came because Jesus was at a party at Matthew's house. Now, you got to understand, the tax collector, I mean, if you don't like the IRS, okay, they had nothing on these guys, okay? Because tax collectors in those days, they were considered to be traitors. They were traitors of the Jewish nation because they were collaborating with the Roman government. And not only that, they were taking our money to support the government that we don't even want here. And, and on top of that, they were actually allowed not only to just collect the tax, they were actually allowed to charge any fee they wanted as a finder's fee. So they could stop you along some toll road and just say, you know, hey, you got to pay your tolls. You got to pay your taxes. And this is what it's going to be. You never knew what it was going to be. They could do all of these things. That's the freedom. In fact, they were so despised. They were such at the bottom. They didn't even make the category sinners. You notice that? Tax collectors. They got their own category. They're so despised. They don't even fit with the sinners. You know, (laughs) on a good day, you might get to be a sinner. But right now, you're just a tax collector. Okay? That's how low they were. And yet, these are the people Jesus hung around with. The very people that he invited into his close circle of 12. You find him throughout his ministry that he actually goes to heal the servant of a Roman centurion. A soldier. The enemy. And he heals him. He, he interacts with a, a Greek woman from Syrophoenicia. Completely outside 
who should be accepted. And yet, he heals her daughter. He carries on a very, very long conversation. It's recorded in the Gospel of John with a Samaritan, and not just any Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. You don't talk with women. You don't talk with Samaritans, and you certainly don't talk with a Samaritan woman. Yet Jesus has this very long conversation about eternal life and the kingdom of God and living water. And in fact, when his disciples come back and they see him talking, they say, what are you talking with her for? That's their reaction. But that's the kind of person Jesus was. He was so inclusive. And people who were the frowned upon, looked upon, disenfranchised, completely on the outs when it came to religion and spirituality were the very people that hung around him and that he gave his time to. Because he was living out this very thing. In my father's house are many rooms. This is not exclusive. This is wide open to everybody. That's very different, by the way, from the religious leaders of its time. Because the religious leaders of its time were constantly making judgments about who's in and who's out and who's good and who's bad. And, 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 and they were constantly looking down upon other people because they weren't carrying up to the standards. And, and in fact, Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his whole Sermon on the Mount is about that very thing. He's not talking about good people and bad people. The whole Sermon is about two different ways of being good. You can be good for the applause of men. You can be good as a means to try and get God's favor. You can be good by trying to perform enough that God would look and love on you. Or you can simply be good and do good out of gratitude to a God who already loves you. And that's what that whole sermon's all about, in essence. See, because when, you, when, you, when it's all about performance... When it's all about religious leaders and measuring up to a standard and trying to uphold that standard, what comes along with that is arrogance and pride. You start to look down on other people because they're not quite as good as you are. The other thing that it does is it changes the way you relate to God. Because in the back of your mind, there was this ongoing thought, well, God owes me because look how good I am. Now, let me ask you, have you ever, have you ever in prayer about something said a prayer along the lines of, God, you know how much I love you, and you know how much I serve you, and you know, so could you please do this for me? Anybody ever done that? Or am I the only one? <laughs> That's just another form of religion. God, you owe me, because look how good I've been. Look how well I serve you. Look how much I do for you. God, you owe me. And that's what happens with religion. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is open not to just religious people. This is open to everybody. In fact, in fact, when the religious people asked Jesus, how can you be hanging, up with, hanging out with those kinds of people? This is what he said. He said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said, the whole reason I came was for these people. Now, it's not that these guys were righteous. The problem with them is they didn't understand how sick they really were. It's not that they were earning something with God. It's not that they were making the great. It's not that they were living up to those expectations. They weren't. The trouble was, and here's the problem with pride and arrogance. You don't know how arrogant and proudful you are. And in fact, the prouder you are, the less likely it is that you can see it in yourself. And so when Jesus says, you know, you don't, in fact, he goes on, he says, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
That's a shocking statement to them. But, but Jesus was saying, no, this is because this isn't about religion. And this isn't about an exclusive club. The kingdom of God, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome because of Jesus. In fact, not only is everybody welcome, everybody is invited. It's not like you get to sneak in the back door unnoticed and maybe, maybe nobody will know you're not really supposed to be here. Just the opposite. It says everybody's invited. He goes on. He says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. What he's saying is, I'm doing the work for you. He says, it's on me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's all kinds of room. This is the biggest place you ever can imagine. And there's a place for you because I'm going to prepare it for you. Now, that is far, far different than the way that we think. Time Magazine did a, a survey not too long ago, just asking people about heaven and hell and their beliefs and all these things. 89% of those surveyed said they believe in a heaven. And when they asked, who do you think is going there? 89% said me. Because <laughs> we all believe, because this is, this is how we think. Heaven's for good people. And so when somebody says, you know, that sounds awfully exclusive when Jesus says, I'm the only way. I think all good people should get to heaven. That sounds very inclusive. That sounds just like wide open. That sounds like the most fair thing that could possibly be. Just good people get to heaven. But here's the problem with that. How good is good enough? Because we all know there ought to be a cutoff line somewhere. And when we say all good people get to go to heaven, while that sounds very democratic and it sounds very wide open, it's actually very, very exclusive because how do you know who's good enough? Where's the cutoff line? And in fact, take it further. Like trying to get into university. If you want to get into a university and the grade point average required is like a 3.5, what about the person that gets a 3.49998? I mean, they're almost there. And they're certainly better than the student with a 2.0. How come they get shut out? See, it sounds to be very wide open and, and just inclusive and open-minded and everything. But what it really does is it, 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 it defines it down to a select few who can be good enough. And the problem with that is nobody knows what's good enough. And so on the one hand, the thing that sounds the most open-minded and inclusive is really very, very exclusive. And the words of Jesus, which sound so, so narrow, are actually wide open. Doesn't, doesn't fit with our thinking, but, but when you think about it, that's really the case. We talked about this last week. See, we have this tendency to judge by comparison. The reason 89% of the people surveyed believe they're going to heaven is they're comparing themselves with the people around them. Show of hands this morning. Anybody here ever made this statement or something similar to the statement that says, well, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Anybody raise your hand? Have you ever said that? You ever not said it but thought it? Okay, when do I, I can tell you when, when do you say that? When do we say, I know I'm not perfect? It's always when we're putting somebody else down, isn't it? You know, I hear it all the time in counseling. You know, a husband's just bragging on his wife and she doesn't do this and she doesn't do that. And, you know, and he just goes on and on and on and putting her down, putting her down. And then somewhere along the conversation, because he's afraid that he's put her so far down that I might think he's perfect, he will say something to the effect that, now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. 
But compared to her, I mean, truthfully, isn't that what we do? See, we say that statement, but we only say that because we're putting somebody else down and we don't want you to think for a possible second that I might think I'm perfect. So I say, not that I'm perfect. Like if perfection's here, I'm like, you know, I'm somewhere here near the top. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm pretty close. Because we judge by comparison. And we seriously overestimate our own goodness. See, when we say good people are going to heaven and we define good people, of course, that's me. I fit there. (laughs) Because we judge by comparison. And we seriously overestimate our own goodness and we seriously underestimate the destructive nature of sin on our lives. Because that's where the problem lies. Nobody lives up to the standard. Because if God is going to be a God who is holy and just, and he's setting a standard, then the only place that standard could be set is perfection. Because that's who he is. And as long as I'm judging by the people around me, I rise to the top in my own mind. But if I compare to what the real standard is, I don't measure up. And neither do you. See, what we don't understand is how destructive sin is in our life. We say, I'm basically a good person. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Although, anytime somebody says that, I say, well, tell me, what are the Ten Commandments you keep? I can never get people to name more than five correctly. There's something in there about, I don't remember. But I basically try to live by them. We overestimate our own goodness. We underestimate what sin does to our life because sin destroys. See, and if God is going to be any kind of a loving God, he's going to hate sin because of what sin does to our lives. Sin is destructive. It is destructive to our souls. It is destructive to our relationships. It is destructive to, to creation and our world. All of the problems of our world All the problems between nations and between people can basically be summed up with the problem of sin. Because that's what sin does. It destroys. Jesus, on the other hand, offers something different. He offers grace. And grace is very, very different than being good. And grace throws open the door for everybody. See, Jesus did everything that could possibly be done to get us into heaven. When he makes that statement, he's not saying, I am trying to keep the riffraff out. Okay? He's not the bouncer at the door deciding who gets into the club or not. It's just the opposite. He's saying, here's the door and it's wide open. Wide open. And he has done everything that can possibly be done to make that door accessible to every person. And Jesus is not in the business of keeping people out. He is in the business of bringing people in. In fact, he even told a parable. He told one of his stories. He told the story of a, of a, of a very rich man who threw a huge banquet. He threw the party of all parties. He had planned for months and months and months. He had sent out to all of his friends, anybody that he knew, he had sent out a, sa- a save the date. And then the date came, and he started to get the RSVPs back saying, well, gee, you know, I'd like to come, but 
I just bought this pair of oxen and I really got to go try them out first. Or I'd like to come, but I got and, and they had all kinds of excuses. And so when it came party day, the place was half empty. Although he invited everybody that he knew, the place was half empty. And Jesus goes on and tells the story. And he says, he says to his servants, he says, okay, we can't have a party like I want to have a party with just this many people. We got to get more people in here. He says, so go all around town. Find anybody. You know, call any of your friends, whoever you know. Just bring them with you. We want to fill this place up. And they do. And they go out and they bring in as many people as they can. And it's still not full. And so the master of the banquet says, listen, he says, we can't have this party unless this place is packed out. So we've used up our guest list and we've used up anybody that you can find and anybody who's on your guest list. We need more people. So he says, don't even stay in town. He says, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And he says, that's the kingdom of God. That God is throwing the party of all parties and he wants the place packed out and he's not looking for ways to shut the door. He's saying, come, get in here. This place is wide open. In essence, in essence, what Jesus is doing is he is throwing open the front door wide open, but we insist on trying to climb through a 10-story window because that's just too easy. That can't be right. I got to prove that I deserve to be here. So let me climb up the outside till I get... In fact, it's even worse than the 10th floor. It's like we're trying to climb to the top of an entire state building to get in. He said, what? The door's open. What are you doing? He says, that's God's heart. Jesus wasn't looking to keep people out. He was making a way so that everybody could come in. And what sounds to be the most exclusive of all of his claims is actually the most inclusive of them all. Peter writes, John writes about it this way. Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He says, this is why I came. Not to bring judgment and condemnation, although that's where sin leads. He said, I came to rescue you from that. And Peter writes, the Lord is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the message of grace. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying everybody's welcome. And everybody is invited. And in fact, he takes it one step further that everybody meets the requirements the same way. There's no special hoops you got to run through. There's, not, there's no special memorizations that you have to have. There's no particular chance you have to chant. Everybody gets in the same way. See, Christ followers believe, no matter how hard I try, I will never get to God. No matter how good I might be, even on my very, very best day, it will not be enough. And that's why Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is declaring the message of grace. Not to exclude anybody, but to include everybody. Because if it was based on my being good enough, that automatically excludes a bunch of people. And if it's based on my having some secret knowledge... That automatically excludes a whole bunch of people. And if it's on my being smart enough or savvy enough, 
or even conniving enough, it still excludes a whole bunch of people. And what Jesus is saying is the door is wide open. I am the door. Come through me. See, what Jesus did was he did for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. None of us could. Because God is holy and perfect. Because he was without fault and his dwelling place is without fault. How could he let a sinner like you in? How could he let a sinner like me in? See, something has to be done about that. And that's what Jesus did. Followers of Jesus Christ believe, I can't get there on my own. Even on my best day with my best efforts. Because there's this thing in me. There's this moral failure that I need, I need help with. And, and what the Bible says is that ultimately, that series of moral failures separates me. It separates me from God It separates me from other people. It ultimately separates me from my very soul. And that kind of separation ultimately is called death. And people ask, well, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? If God is so loving and so forgiving, why doesn't he just forgive and let everybody in? Because forgiveness has a price. Think about it. Have you ever had to forgive somebody? See, when you choose to forgive somebody, particularly the greater the offense, the harder this is. But in essence, what happens is when you choose to forgive somebody, they have done you wrong. They have harmed you. They have hurt you in some way, shape or form. And what you choose to do is instead of paying them back for what they did, you choose to forgive, which means you're going to carry that pain all by yourself. C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, that's the essence of forgiveness. With forgiveness means somebody else bears the pain. You do me wrong, I choose to forgive. That means I'm carrying the pain for what you did to me. And what Jesus did on the cross was he ultimately bore the pain for every one of us. There can't be forgiveness without somebody bearing the pain of it. That's what he was doing on the cross. And the answer, the answer to this dilemma is that Jesus paid that price and he took that pain upon himself. And in that was his love. And that's what Jesus said. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that the good people could have eternal life. No. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that the smart people could have eternal life. No. Under, under, look, under, underline, circle, whatever you got to do, that word whoever, because that whoever means Everybody means everybody, whoever will. You've, got, you've just got to believe and trust that what's been done for you is all that needs to be done. And you're never going to be able to do it for yourself. You've got to rely on somebody who did it for you. And the only one who did that for you, and the only one who ever made the claim to be able to do that for you, is Jesus Christ. 
And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, he's saying, I am the one that's opening the door for you. I am the one that's making it possible, no matter how bad you are, or no matter what you have done, or where you have strayed, or how you have behaved, whoever will believe in me will have eternal life. And what sounds like the most exclusive, narrow-minded claim that could ever be made turns out to be the most wide-open, accepting, and inclusive that anybody could make. Dinesh D'Souza wrote a book, came out a couple years ago, called What's So Great About Christianity? And he writes these words. I love this. He said, Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because we owe a debt we cannot pay. Christ on his cross literally assumed all the darkness, loneliness, and sin of the world. Thus, Christ reconciles divine justice and divine mercy. The bridge man was unable to build to God, God has built for man. Christ offers us something for nothing, C.S. Lewis writes. He even offers us everything for nothing. In a sense, the whole Christian life consists in accepting that very remarkable offer. The difficulty is in realizing that we are sinful and that there is nothing we can do to solve this problem. A related obstacle is accepting God's authority and his plan for our life. These obstacles, in other words, are simply those of human pride. The only thing, the only thing that excludes us from what God has for us is our own pride, our own arrogance our own unwillingness to admit, I can't do this. I need somebody else. And that's why Paul said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.